Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, I trust that you've opened your Bible by now to Psalm 31. If you haven't, please do so. If you have an electronic Bible and a paper Bible with you, I'm going to ask that you try to open your paper Bible. Um, I won't rant this time about my thoughts on electronic Bibles uh, during preaching, but uh, I'm going to encourage some of you, hopefully, to take my advice and make some notes in your column, of, uh, in the side column of your Bible that might be of help in years to come. There is a book uh, I wish to highly recommend to you, each one of you. Uh, it's a book written by a man named Jim Andrews, and the book's title is called Polishing God's Monuments. Polishing God's Monuments by Jim Andrews. Now, in this book, it's a, it's a brutal book, but it's also a very good book. It's, it's a book in which and, uh, Mr. Andrews chronicles uh, the terrible and simply unrelenting trials that his daughter and her husband had to endure for literally years upon years. These, the, the trial and the sickness and the struggles that uh, she had to have resulted in her not being able to be around people and no one could be near her. Now, this, uh, these struggles did not leave Mr. Andrews and his wife untouched. As you can imagine, as parents, that they suffer greatly themselves as they watch their daughter and her husband suffer so great. In fact, it was so hard that it drove them at times to simply despair. And so in the book, he said that you need, and I need, a monumental faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean a great faith. If, if you're worried about it, that's not what he's talking about. But it's actually a faith that looks backward at moments where you saw God's faithfulness in your life, where you saw God come and rescue you or bring salvation. By way of an example, you can think of perhaps Israel when they were finally ready to enter into the promised land that God commanded that before they entered that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried across the Jordan River and that as it went into the river, the river split apart and it became dry land much like at the Red Sea. And then when the Ark was in the middle of the river, they stopped there. And it was there that then all of Israel had to pass over into the promised land. And as they would pass by, uh, this mass of humanity would all see the ark. The ark was the testimony of God's faithfulness. It was where his promises were placed. But then when they came over, God commanded them to go back, and, and representatives of each tribe were to go and to find a large rock, carry it, and lay it on the other shore and pile it up. And what it was designed to be was a monument. 
Here's what's recorded in Joshua. It says, let this be a sign among you. Now listen, so that when your children later ask, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because... The waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And so these stones shall become a memorial or a monument to the sons of Israel forever. Well, what he argues in his book is that we need to do the same thing. We need to put up monuments of God's faithfulness in our lives so that we can remember them in the dark times. And sometimes we, we, we are in such great darkness that we're not even able to remember those times. Sometimes we struggle to even realize the mercies of God in our life. And he says, in those even darker times, sometimes you need to go and borrow other people's monuments. You need to go back and and hear the stories of God's faithfulness in another person's life and to cling to that and, and open your word and read of the times over and over again where God is faithful. All of this is so that you can look upon those monuments of God's faithfulness, be reminded that he is faithful, and that you can press forward in faith. Now, this book is an exceedingly painful read. It is an utterly honest book that pulls no punches at all about what it looks like for a Christian to live by faith in a sin-soaked world. Let me give you just one incident that stood out when I read it. He writes, I remember in 1992 when we were about five years into my daughter's illness, life at that point was very stressful. What significantly sapped our strength was that Olsi, which is his wife, was needed to care for Julie as her circumstances caused Paul to be a virtual housebound prisoner. And at this point, her illness began taking ugly new turns and complications just kept multiplying. One morning at the church office where my wife served as our bookkeeper, she literally came apart. Suddenly, she could no longer add simple figures. Literally. Right there, this blind man opened his eyes and saw that his wife, overwhelmed by more than any one woman could handle, was sinking fast and needed rest. I told her I was taking her home immediately. And the very fact that she didn't object was a huge clue that she was not herself. Once in the car, Olsi's rubber bands just snapped. For 15 minutes solid, she was irrational. She was writhing, kicking, screaming, bouncing her head off of the dashboard. I was helpless and totally bewildered. I had no idea what to do, and fear seized me. I got her home put her to bed, and for the next six weeks or so, she was in a state of classic clinical depression. She was staring into a black hole so deep that she thought she would never again see the light of day. And in the months leading up to her breakdown, she gradually lost 25 pounds and was so heartbroken and drained at Julie's pitiful condition that all her fountains were dried up. She couldn't even cry. And now, at last, she collapsed emotionally into a fetal position on her bed. And occasionally, she was tormented by literal voices taunting her and urging her 
to curse God and die. And it gets worse. It's a brutal book. What you have in that book is a picture of utter despair. It's a poor mother who simply wants to help the suffering daughter. But due to the illness, she can't. And this sickness her daughter had prevented anyone being near her. Now imagine mothers, especially here, the pain. The face of the Lord has seemed to turn away, and everything is now dark. This is a face of anguish. It's a face that is something that each of us perhaps will face in our lives. Well, in Psalm 31... What we have is David in a similar grip of that same type of an all-encompassing anguish. He is beset by enemies once again, and it's been going on now for quite some time. And to add to that mix, the awareness of how his own sin is playing into the whole mess, and what you end up with is a man utterly broken. He's at the end of his rope. And like anyone who is having to endure great hardship... For a long time, he is now coming to a point of simply being broken. And so this is a psalm, beloved, for broken people. People who are filled with anguish. But in all of this, we see a man who is a man of faith. It doesn't make him exempt, though. It does not make him exempt from the suffering. But it does, listen to this, control, it controls how He deals with it, even when the battle is at its most intense. And so this psalm is very emotional. It describes simply the ebb and the flow of a battleground that's taking place within a heart of a man who is committed to the one true God. It is a battleground in the heart of a man who is committed to, to the one true God. So listen as I read it. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength and a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. You have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have, in fact, set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in a distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my ears with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body has wasted away because of all my adversaries. I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. To those who see me in the street flee, or those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am a broken vessel. 
For I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard my voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you godly, all, all you his godly ones. The, the Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. May the Lord bless his word. Now, many commentators have tried to describe this psalm. One man said it's a mosaic of misery and mercy. Another one describes it as a fight with feelings. I tried to model the one that's my favorite in the manner in which I read this psalm. Dr. Scroge pictures this as David riding now the crest and then the trough of the wave. There's this rising up and the crashing down. Did you see it as you read along? That's rising up and then right back down again. Rising up and right back down again. It's relentless. What I like about the psalm so much is that it is intensely honest about the nasty side of life. That we live in a fallen world and we live there as fallen creatures. That we battle sin both on the outside of ourselves and within ourselves. And so the mix is never very pleasant, is it? But if we're not wise and we waste our time, we waste our money trying somehow to make this world not be as broken, not be as fallen, not be as sinful as the Bible says it really is. And there are times where it all comes together in a mighty war that can rend the most steady of people where they cry out and ask, when, Father, when will I finally find that rest? That moment where we feel we are being torn apart, both in the outside and on the inside, where simply our days are filled with anguish. There's another thing that I found interesting in this psalm, that it's quoted by two prophets, Jonah and Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is the one that really stood out in my mind because Jeremiah, if you don't know, is known as the weeping prophet. He's an author of Lamentations, which is simply an entire book of lament. 
This poor man, Jeremiah, says in Jeremiah 1.5 that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Yahweh tells him. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And oh, what a miserable task he was given. He was told, you will go to this stubborn people called Israel, my people. You will call them to repentance, and they will not listen to you. Go. You go and you preach day in and day out. Come back to the Lord. He is gracious. Come back, repent, and find salvation. And he has promised they will not listen to him. There will be no revival. There will be no joy. You will be hated and despised. You will be cast into even a cistern where he sinks into the mud up to his armpits. He is hated and despised. And that is his calling before he was even made. He uses this psalm But even more important than that, our own Lord himself quotes verse 5 just before he surrenders his life. So what I want us to do today is turn our attention to this man who bears his soul for all of us to see as he enters into this battle for his spirit. And as we do so, there are six lessons that I want us to take away. Those dark times where you may find yourself where you must be prepared. And so I will argue for you today that if you will listen carefully and you will take home these six lessons and that you will seek to plant them deep within your soul for that dark day, that you will be better prepared to enter into the battle. And beloved, may I suggest to you that that dark day may be far sooner coming than you're ready to admit. This would be a place where I would encourage you to jot down these six points where they fit into the side column of your Bible so that when your, your, your eyes are filled with tears, right, and, and you can't think and, and you're starting to feel like you might be having a heart attack and, and you're struggling just to breathe and, and that rushing noise, if you know what I mean, where things are so out of control that it feels like there's this rushing noise in your ears and, and you're on a roller coaster coaster you can't get off and you're frightened and you're 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 filled with a level of anguish that you didn't know existed beloved if you think you will remember this sermon just because you're listening passively you will not you will not do not think you're as strong as you think you are right now because you are not david is a man of god and he is filled with anguish So let's learn six lessons. The first, in verses one through four, is such a simple one. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me. Be a rock of strength, a stronghold. You're my rock. For your name's sake, lead me. You will pull me out of the net. Why? Because you are my strength. In other words, the first lesson is turn to the Lord in prayer. Turn to God in prayer in that time when the rubber band that is your mind snaps. What is it that you must do when those moments come? Well, it's prayer. Such an obvious point, isn't it? And yet, the hard reality is that we don't do it. 
There is this curious tendency about humans that they want to seek their own way and their own wisdom so quickly, and they are exceedingly slow to turn to God in the prayer. Now, this started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Eve looked at the tree that was forbidden her, and she decided that her way was a better way. And then Adam looks at his wife and has to decide between wife and God, and he chooses wife. And from that day forward, when the fall of mankind came, since that time, humanity keeps on thinking it knows better. I include you and myself in that statement. We are exceedingly slow to turn to God in prayer. It is too often what we do actually at the end of everything else, right? We try, we try, we try, and then when there's nothing left, we pray. We know this experientially as none of us prays as we ought to. We also, though, know it biblically because there is this constant admonition and exhortation to pray. Paul says to pray, right, without ceasing. He says, let your requests be made known to God. James says that we don't have because we don't ask. Later on in the same book, he says that the prayer of the faithful, righteous man will accomplish much. Now, why do you think that the Bible speaks so much about prayer? Because we don't do it. We just don't do it. And so we're in this constant need of encouragement to go to the Lord in prayer. And that's what David does right away, right at the beginning of this psalm. He turns to God in prayer and he lays it all out. He almost vomits it up in prayer to God. There's no initial word of praise or thanksgiving, no introductory remarks made here. It's just him pouring out his hurt and seeking to be saved and to be strengthened. Notice, though, how it's all built upon faith. Look down and notice, it is built upon faith. Verse 3 says that the Lord is already David's rock and fortress. It's not that he might become that. That the Lord is already that craggy outcropping that is strong and solid. Which is why David says in verse 1 that he has taken refuge in the Lord. He says, Father, I need your help because I'm hiding in you. You are my fortress. But also notice that the reason that David is asking the Lord to rescue him is because he has taken refuge in him. In fact, this is the whole point of verse 3. For thy name's sake, for your name's sake, you will guide me, you will lead me. He is convinced that the Lord in some way or another is going to rescue him because he is in this unique relationship. And so let me say this, that you have to be convinced, beloved, that the Lord will rescue you. Now, I will say this, that it very likely will not be in accordance to your timing. It is also very true that likely it will not be in the method in which you have ordained it to be. But if you are in Christ, I can promise you that you will be rescued. You will be saved. This is a reference, beloved, of of the covenant relationship for your namesake. When he says that, it's not just a throwaway line. 
What he, is in, it, what he is invoking is a covenant relationship that David has with the Lord. It, it really, for David, is a triple covenant. Because not only does he have the covenant that was made with Abraham, but he also has the covenant that was made with Moses on behalf of Israel that he can appeal to. But David is David. There's an entire covenant known as the Davidic covenant that's his. And when he is invoking the word, the name of the Lord, he is invoking the Lord's faithfulness to his covenants, his promises. So he understands that what happens to him will reflect upon God. And it's on that, on that basis that he is pleading for help and he expects help. It's sort of like when Israel sins in Numbers 14, right? Where, where they grumble against God. They're complaining. He's sent them out here. We're just going to die. He's unfaithful. They want to actually stone to death Moses and Aaron. And and God says, I'm done. I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses goes and intercedes for them. If you think that Moses cares about the people, you missed the story. They're a stubborn people, but there are people God made covenant with. And so he appeals to the, uh, the Lord in prayer, and he says this. He's like, if you destroy them, then the nations who watched you rescue them out of Egypt will think that you abandoned them and that you are not faithful to your word. For your name's sake, do not destroy them. That's his argument. It's not for the sake of the people. It's for the sake of the name that he is appealing. It's God's reputation. And that's what he is saying here. He says, for your name's sake, you will lead me and you will guide me. He he is confident of that because he is a man who belongs to a covenant and God must be and always will be faithful to his covenant promises. In other words, he needs help, but what ultimately drives him is not his need, but the glory of God before the nations. People are watching, and they need to see him faithful to his promises. And so I can say this, that when the storms of life strike you hard, go to God in prayer. It's that simple. Remember that you and I are in Christ. In Christ. Paul loves to use that phrase in his letters, It's a place that is a wonderful place for us to be, that we are now in union with our Lord and Savior. And therefore, everything that belongs to Christ becomes ours because we're in him. That in him, we have eternal life. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have justification. In him, there is no condemnation. In him are all things necessary to life and godliness. It's a good place to be. And because we're in Christ, Christ promises that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. So if you feel that way today, it is not true. Remember that he calls upon all of us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. He's like, you're burdened? Then come. I love you and I care for you. Can we not all remember And remind one another that we have a faithful high priest who has suffered like us, who has been tempted and yet 
not sinned, that he is the one who bids us to come to our Father in heaven in prayer, that he is always there, ever making intercession for all of us in the perfections of his death and resurrection. And so he says, come to your Father in boldness to the very throne room for the grace in the time of your need. The first lesson is simply go to God in prayer. The second lesson is in 5 through 8, trust in God. Trust in God. I've been doing this for a long time now, beloved. Between pastoring and being a chaplain, I've got 30 years in, and I still find myself almost daily telling someone, you need to trust in God. And if it's not somebody that I'm telling it to, I'm usually rebuking myself and saying, Matt, you need to trust God. We all know this. We just don't do it very good. We're very poor at this. Trust in God, verses 5 through 8. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. You have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. In fact, you have set my feet in a large place. Beloved, this is a trust that's not a slight trust. It's a total trust. Notice the terminology that he uses and underlined it. Into thy hand, into thy hand, I commend or commend or commit my spirit. Now, what's going on there? Well, it's his spirit that he's speaking of. It's, it's that word in the Hebrew called nephesh. It's a, it's a good word. It, it, it speaks of the spirit, but it speaks of that very essence that was breathed into Adam on the day he was created, where it says that the Lord breathed the spirit, the nephesh, into him, and he became, here, here's the term, he became a living soul. It's what separates him from everything else in all of creation, that Yahweh breathed, and he became a soul, a living soul. It is the very essence of what you and I possess. It is that most precious thing, and it is, if you did not know, immortal. It is that which David is placing into the hands of the Lord. In a sense, he is surrendering here fully to the Lord. He has been broken to the point that he has nothing, and he casts himself in the fullness of the essence of what makes him him, his nephesh, his spirit. He comes to the Lord, and he trusts that whatever the Lord will do will be the best and right in the Lord's eyes. Beloved, he's not entrusting his health. He is not entrusting his family. He is not entrusting his marriage. He is not entrusting his job. He is entrusting the essence of who he is. He says it a different way in verse 15, where he says, my times are in your hand. In other words, I'm on this roller coaster. I can't get off. I'm just in your hands. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that point where it's so dark, so deep, so hopeless that you have nothing left? Have you ever been drugged that deeply down? Let me say that most of you never have. 
but you very easily will be. When your feet are swept away from that sturdy place where you're found to be floundering and going down, you swear for the last time, where will you trust? And in whom will you trust? And here, what will you entrust him with? What will you throw his way and say, I give you this? But to be in the hands of the Lord is a good place, is it not? It takes faith to believe that at times when things are out of control, but it's always a good place. I remember one of my daughters and I, we were stepping out of the house to go, for, and I was going to take her for a little walk. She was just a little girl. And as I stepped out, she ran to the sidewalk all excited, and all of a sudden I saw, this is a small thing, but I saw a massive Rottweiler see her, and he just took off, and he just started galloping toward her. And, and he was fast. <laughs> And I, I saw her, and I saw him, and it looked like he was ready to go after her. I didn't know. You don't know. I just leapt at my daughter. I grabbed her by one arm, and I just, just shoved her up above my head. And I stood there, and I was going to just try to take the dog. I was scared. My daughter was completely at peace. She giggled. She thought daddy was playing with her. <laughs> but, I, uh, but I reflected on that. It turned out he was just a happy dog. But I reflected on that just in the walk, how simple my daughter's faith was in her father. She didn't recognize the danger. She didn't understand what possibly was going to happen. She didn't recognize what even might happen to me. All she knew is daddy has her, and it's a good place to be. It is always a good place to be in the hands of the Father. Always. Now, we would be unwise to pass by this passage, though, without realizing that our Savior chose the passage at the very end of his ordeal on the cross, wouldn't we? Listen to one man, a theologian named Dr. Wilson, who says this. He says, Luke's Christ... Surrounded by taunting enemies and fearful, doubting disciples, enters into death as an act of commitment to the righteous God of truth, who alone can be trusted to vindicate the enduring faith of the righteous. With these words, Christ slipped not down from the cross to avoid death, as his sneering detractors tempted him to do, nor or to assume without further suffering his rightful role as messianic king, but rather into the secure refuge of God that even death could not shake or overthrow. And so like Jesus, we cannot assume that committing our spirits into the hand of God of truth will result in deliverance from suffering and death. Indeed, to commit one's spirit in this way is to give up any control or expectation over the outcome of life and to trust in the redemptive love of God come what may. It is this giving up that makes it possible in the final analysis to enter the refuge of God. The taunts and ridicule do not disappear. They simply pass by without harm because we have passed beyond caring. 
The one who gives up life finds it. And in surrendering our claim to what we had thought to be life, we discovered the true nature of living in the power of God alone and in his presence. Those are good words. You find life when you cast it away into the hands of the Lord. It's fascinating, as you read church history, to find out how many people use the same passage at the end of their life. Men like Bernard and Huss, Jerome and Luther, Melanchthon. In fact, Luther said this. He said, Blessed are they who die, not only for the Lord as martyrs, but also in, but only in the Lord as all believers, but likewise with the Lord as breathing forth their lives in these words. Into thy hand I commend my spirit. Now, as I'm trying to say, this section is teaching us to trust God even in the midst of great pain. When David entrusts his spirit to the Lord, we see that it is the great treasure, that jewel that was most precious to David. Not his mind, not his body, not his health, not his wealth. It's his spirit. For if his spirit is safe, he's safe. We see what is that great treasure in that. Everything else shall follow in due time. And so he entrusts the most precious treasure, his spirit, to the only one who will ever be able to keep it safe, Yahweh. So, beloved, what about you? Let me ask that. Are you casting your broken, fearful, anguished spirit into the hands of your Lord? Are you yet at that point? where he graciously breaks you so far down that there is nowhere else to turn? Or are you still (coughs) seeking your own way? Listen to what Paul says. He's waiting for a sword to come and sever his head. He's lying in the sewers chained In darkness, he writes these words to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what, let me say that again. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul's ready and willing to die for the gospel. He is willing to suffer in the very bowels of the sewers, waiting for that moment. But he says he's safe. Are you saying that? You might be filled with tears and dread and anguish, but are you safe? Do you see that God truly is your salvation? Do you understand that you're safe because the most important essence of your being, your nephesh, your spirit, is held in the hands of God. That everything really is okay. Oh, beloved, let this burn into your souls that God will always save those who cast themselves upon him. Whether it's salvation from enemies or from sickness or from shame, he always rescues you 
whether it's temporal issues or eternal issues, he rescues you. To call upon the name of the Lord is to be saved. That is David. He is filled with trust in the midst of anguish. So he declares with a sudden burst of passion that he actually hates all of those who worship idols. Not him. David is not that man. He will not turn his hope to other things. He hates it. He looks upon those idols with hatred. That's not his way. He will not worship Baal. He is not going to offer children to Molech. He will not visit the temples of Asherah, hoping that somehow in those things he will get salvation. He says, no, I hate him. There is one place and only one place he will ever cast his hope, and it is in Yahweh, the true God. He trusts in God, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is hiding in that great stone fortress known as Yahweh. It's a st- fortress that cannot be shaken. Where are you looking? What are you hoping in? What have you lied to yourself right now into thinking that you need to be content? Beloved, there is only one thing. In fact, there's only one person that can do this for you. It is God and God alone. Would you not now just commit your spirit to him? Would you not now just cast yourself upon him? Because in the darkest of times, only God will be be there. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Do not think that you will be different than your master. And do not think that you will be different than your Lord. If he lies hanging on the cross, bearing our sin and our shame, and he casts his spirit into the hands of his father, how can we not? Because his trust in God <clears throat> is there, there is this awareness in seven, verse 7, that God has regarded his plight, that he's not ignoring David, for David is hiding in him. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. He's like, it's not like you're unaware, Father. As I studied this passage, I thought about how blessed it is to have the one true God regard you, to look upon you with favor, to cause his face to shine upon you and just show you grace. Think of what hell is like. Hell is defined as the outer darkness, not just darkness, but the outer darkness. It is that place where God will have no regard for the person. There's this one place where God God will have no regard for those who are there because they would not trust him. They would not delight in him. They would not uh, hope in him. They would not cast their spirit into his hands. They wanted their own way, and he gives it to them to the fullness, and he turns his back upon them. And in the outer darkness, there is nothing but that which is of sheer agony. There's a doctrine I hate with a level of hatred I'm not going to be capable of doing here, a doctrine known as purgatory, developed in the Catholic Church as a means to shackle the people all the more to the church. 
And in that, it is the idea that you still must pay the punishment for all of your sins. And so all that remains unconfessed, which will result in tens of thousands of years minimum for each of you, that you go into purgatory, which is like hell, and it's a place of burning in which all of the impurities that are yours are burned away until finally God grants you the right to enter into heaven. And I think about the literally the millions upon millions of souls that are right now in supposedly, they think, purgatory, and they're having their sins burned away. And the one little hope they have right now still is that eventually they'll end up in heaven. But on that great day of judgment, when they are brought before the Lord for the final judgment, Matthew 7 says that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they tell you all the things they did. And Jesus says, I never knew you. They did not commit their hearts to God. And for all eternity, they will find his back to them. So let me ask you once again, make certain of your calling, make certain of your faith, do whom do you trust, and if you have not done so, would you not even now simply call upon the name of the Lord, look to Christ for salvation? Third, and we're going to go faster here, so don't lose heart, seek God's mercy, seek God's mercy. In verses 9 through 13, Be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? Because I'm in distress. My eye is wasted. And he goes on to describe the the horrors that are happening to him. What you see in this is, is his anguish. This is a man of God, and he's experiencing absolute loneliness and hurt. In fact, it's from both outside and within him. So verse 10 talks about the cost of sin and its toll upon the body and the heart. Verse 11 brings in that painful aspect of having enemies who seek to do him harm and destroy. And so there's no escape from a human perspective. He is haunted and pursued in every way, and he has no one there to help him. No one where he can turn among all of mankind to find strength. So what's a man to do? Well, it's to cry for mercy. He says, oh, Father, show me mercy and grace. And that's what he says in verse 9. It's a very simple but heartfelt request. Why? Why does he need grace? Well, verses 9 through uh, the last part of 9 and all the way down to verse 13 lists it. But I think verse 12 gives the most graphic picture of his despair. He says, I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. I like the way the NIV actually translates it. He says, I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like a broken pottery. In other words, I'm nothing. He's just a broken pot. He's lying, discarded, and forgotten. The king of Israel is forgotten and ignored. What a lonely place to be. But my mind necessarily then goes to a place like 2 Corinthians 4, where it says this, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But, huge word right there, but, 
We have this treasure of the glory of God. Oh, what a magnificent picture. We have this treasure in earthen vessels or clay pots. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Beloved, are you willing for that? Are you willing to be that? Are you willing to be that clay pot? That broken piece of pottery forgotten by everyone. Everyone. Would you be content to be a broken pot so that God's power is seen and not yours? Paul says it's worth it. In fact, he says it's not even worth thinking otherwise. Let me ask it a different way. Are you willing to stumble your way into heaven? Or do you demand of God that you walk into heaven with a happy path and a jaunty step? Are you willing to understand that at the very best, you're a broken pot in which God's grace shines out of? Our prayers are always make us strong, and God's answer is always make you weak. And you say, why will you not answer me? And he says, I have. And you say, I want to see your power. And he says, then be content in your weakness. But I don't like my weakness. And he says, therefore, I will give you more weakness. And, you, and I know you're laughing, but it hurts. It hurts. And sometimes you swear, I can't go another step. And he gives you more God is determined to do one thing in you, and that is to manifest his glory in you. And it will not be done in your power and in your time and in your way. So we see here the trust and the faith that comes out in David, just as it does with Paul. If there was no faith, then David would not have pled for grace. Why? Because he knows that God will not answer if he has no faith. But David knows better, and though it's a time of great darkness, and humanly speaking, he is completely unknown, he knows that God's still there. And therefore, I would say to you, plead for mercy in your time of great need. Fourth lesson, in 14 to 18, it's to expect God's answer. To expect God's answer. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Verse 16, make your face to shine upon me. Verse 17, let me not be put to shame. Let the lying lips be mute. Verse 18, again, it's key. Expect God's answer. In James chapter 1, verse 5, I say this all the time to people when I'm speaking to them about prayer. And, And I say, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, 
Not as a double-minded man, tossed to and fro like in the sea. Let not that man expect he will receive anything. God promises wisdom, but you must believe him that he will give it to him because he's promised it. In in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you believe that? Have you sought him in prayer? And you say, yeah, but, and I say, no. You can't say, but. Is he a rewarder of those who seek him in faith? That's what the scripture declares. And there is no but in there. If you have sought him in prayer, then expect him to answer, beloved. It's his way. It's in accordance to his character. He will answer you if you trust that he will answer you. He cannot deny himself. And that's where we begin to see David straightening up, getting his bearings down again. He says, I trust in you. You are my God, verse 14. And now what you see is a broken man standing back up and pulling out his sword and say, let's go fight. Let's enter the battle. Can you hear the strength starting to return to him? Can you sense the fog that's filling his mind is finally clearing a bit? And so he makes his requests. He makes them with clarity and specificity. There's this rapid pace. My mind or my life is in your hand. Deliver me from my enemies. Make your face to shine upon me. Save me. Let me not be put to shame. Why? Verse 17, because I'm calling on you. He actually expects... An answer. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. But we read it this way, Ask, and it may happen. Seek, and you might be lucky. And then we wonder, why does not God answer? Well, that's because that's exactly what we expected of him, not to answer. Fifth lesson, 19 to 22, is praise God's goodness. Praise God's goodness. Now comes the praise. He says, oh, how great is your goodness. The pain's not gone, beloved. The enemies are still there. That does not silence, though, the lips of this man. And that's what we need to learn, that the Lord may ordain dark times for us, but he will walk beside us even into that very valley of death. He will bear us across that great chasm of darkness of the unknown into his joy and into his salvation. But we must praise him. We must praise him because he is good. How will we know that we're showing faith? Have you ever thought about how do you know if you're showing faith? if it ultimately leads you to praise his goodness in the midst of the darkness. He is still your Lord and Savior. He has been bruised for your transgressions. Our life is hidden in Christ. We are ourselves being kept by his power to receive an imperishable reward. We have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have inherited all of the spiritual blessings in heaven. We are not enemies. We are not slaves. We are the very children of the Most High. He is good to you. 
You may be in a weak and anguished place, beloved, but you are his child. So praise him. Sixth, and finally, invite others then to praise you. Oh, love the Lord, in verse 23, all you, his godly ones. That's what we're going to do at the end of this message. We're going to be invited to stand and praise our Lord. And that is the natural desire of David. He's alone, but he wants the people to come and to stand and to rise up and not look at David and say, oh, we forgot about our good King David. What a great guy he is. We love you, David, and and all of the stuff that you and I secretly yearn for. No, he doesn't really care about himself at this point now. He has his Yahweh, and all he really wants is God's people to come with him. And can we all stand and praise our Lord He can't do it alone. He's compelled in his spirit to come and to bid others to come, the congregation of believers to come and to praise God with him. And so what you have here at the end of this psalm is, if you can get it in your mind's picture, is is a battered, bruised king standing back up, victorious in weakness. And now he ministers to his own people in weakness. He says, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you. In verse 24, all you who hope in the Lord. Jim Andrews in his book makes this very simple but powerful point. He says, one mark of a truly walking faith as opposed to a merely talking faith is where it goes with its doubts. In the walls of faith, there is always hairline cracks that great stress exposes. For example, he says in Psalm 10, where David cried out, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Actually, the Lord wasn't hiding. David is only describing his emotional perceptions, not theological reality. And to embattled believers, it sometimes seems like God is hiding. But in reality, the Lord has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So what sets a living faith apart from a dead faith is not the presence or absence of doubt, but the triumph of faith. Where there is genuine faith, or where it is genuine, faith is deeper than doubt, and in the rough and tumble of life's battles, living faith always wins out. So let me close this with just one more psalm as we prepare to sing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. 
The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever, thy God, O Zion, to all generations. Therefore, praise the Lord.